Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. Well, it's Friday, everyone, and the president, his legal team, or his allied lawmakers still have not offered credible evidence for his claims of widespread voter fraud. But pushback is coming. Even Karl Rove, architect of George W. Bush's 2000 presidential win, wrote in the Wall Street Journal, quote, "...the president's efforts won't move a single state." That didn't stop Trump, who tweeted out this video on Wednesday night. The more people tell you it's not possible, that it can't be done, the more you should be absolutely determined to prove them wrong. From NPR and WBUR, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today on Point, intransigence and the transition. I just think it's an embarrassment, um, quite frankly, uh, The only thing that, uh, how can I say this uh, tactfully, I I think it will not help the president's legacy. Also not being helped, America's faith in democratic institutions and the smooth transition of leadership in those institutions themselves. The Department of Defense, Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, all made even more difficult right now in the midst of a massive surge in the coronavirus pandemic. So let's get to making sense of what's happening in the transition and what could come next. Joining us today is Tim Alberta, chief political correspondent for Politico. He's with us from Ypsilanti, Michigan. Tim, welcome back to On Point. Thank you for having me. Also with us today, Timothy Naftali. He teaches history at New York University. He's a presidential historian for CNN and founding director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. And we've got links to his essay in foreign policy about presidential transitions. That's at onpointradio.org. Timothy Naftali, welcome back to you. Thanks. Hi. And with us, as always, from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point News analyst Jack Beatty. Hello, Jack. Hello, Magna, Tim, and Tim. <laughs> Two Tims and a Jack today. So let's, I first want to hear uh, from, from all of you just briefly, your take on this week. How stymied is uh, the, the transition, is, is President-elect Biden's transition right now? And, and is, it, is it something worthy of, of, of deep concern? And Tim Alberta, let me start with you. Well, uh, Democrats certainly believe that it's uh, worthy of deep concern. The the silver lining, as it were, for the Biden transition team and for the incoming Biden government is that um, you you do have a lot of folks around the former vice president who are deeply experienced in Washington. He's, He's not going to be coming in with a lot of folks trying to learn on the fly. He's uh, already begun to surround himself and will continue to surround himself with a lot of longtime savvy Washington insiders, which is just to say that they might not have quite the learning curve uh, that another incoming administration would have. But there are deep concerns, particularly on the national security front and also on the COVID-19 front, about their readiness to take the wheel on day one. And obviously, uh, every day that slips away from them now, that's valuable time lost when you're talking about, you know, getting 4,000 some political appointees in these various departments and agencies up to speed and and ready to hit the ground running. Mm. Well, Timothy Naftali, I know you've written in detail about how transitions were always kind of a weak point um, in in the machinery of America's democratic institutions. And I want to hear from you on that in a second, but let me get your historian's take first. Have we seen uh, a moment like this in U.S. history where uh, the sitting president ref- not only refused to concede, but critical lawmakers around him from his own party also joined in on, on that bandwagon and are just denying uh, the, the truth that a transition needs to happen. I mean, there's no, I I don't see any um, mathematical possibility in the president's current legal cases that would change the outcome of this election. So have we been here before? Uh, No, we've never been here before. Once again, uh, Donald J. Trump is taking us where 
no man or woman has gone before in presidential history. Um, we've had, we have had, of course, uh, <clears throat> fraught post-president, uh, post-election periods, 1876, but it didn't involve an incumbent. Uh, it, it involved uh, uh, Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes. Ultimately, that was decided by the House. Um, of course, 2000, um, it involved an incumbent vice president, but it did not involve a president. Uh, so this is the first time. In fact, there are a number of firsts involved with uh, uh, sort of uh, in, uh, linked to the outcome of the election. One is that generally speaking, when an incumbent is denied reelection, their party suffers as well. And that's not what happened in this case. And I believe, and we'll talk about that later, that's one reason why it's the split decision of this election that is one reason why President Trump is, is I think, able to play this game the way he has. Mm. And so, no, this is an unusual and unfortunate um, um, situation for us. Jack, your, your take? Well, undoubtedly, uh, it's important that the Biden people connect with the professionals in these departments. But I can't see that it would be any use to Biden uh, to connect with uh, the, uh, you know, anti-justice <laughs> attorney general, the anti-education secretary, Elizabeth DeVos and her people, the anti-environmental uh, secretary, Andrew Wheeler, at the head of the EPA, or the anti-labor secretary at the head of labor, Eugene Scalia, and on and on. In other words, the people that Trump has appointed are no are, are are people that Biden doesn't need to talk to, would learn nothing from talking to, and this goes for their chief, their assistants, their chiefs of staffs, and so on. It isn't like this is a normal Republican administration. This is the Z team out there, and there's nothing to be gained from talking to people like that. Okay, so I want to hear from all of you your thoughts on sort of what the what the costs to the country are for this. Um, hobbled transition. Let's let's just call it that for now, because President-elect Biden is is you know he has been putting forth this uh, sort of calm demeanor, saying that they're already beginning the transition, they're well underway, everything's okay. Uh, but on the other hand, for for example, um, at the beginning of this week, we spoke with uh, Colonel Larry Wilkerson. He served for more than thirty years uh, in the United States military, including. Also, as chief of staff for Colin Powell when Powell was at the Joint Chiefs um, and as secretary of state. So he – Wilkerson knows firsthand what uh, transitions are like and here's what he told us. The reason we have these long transitions is because we are a superpower, because we have 800 bases across the globe, because we are an empire. And running that empire is no easy thing. And so we have this transition so that the new members coming in can look at the policy papers, look at the sanctions list, look at the state list of terrorists, look at all the things that the administration in power has done and then make up their own minds as to whether they're going to continue it, whether they're going to change it, throw it out, whatever. It's it's a very, very, very important process. That's Colonel Larry Wilkerson on our show earlier this week. Timothy Naftali, talk about this a, a little bit. It, is is it hobbling um, uh, uh, the Biden administration not being able to engage fully in the normal process of transition? I don't think it's hobbling. It's okay. it's complicating matters. But I uh, but to Jack Beatty's point, um, I'm not sure that the current team the Trump team is preparing the kinds of documents that um, their predecessors would have prepared for a handoff. I'm not sure that the points of intersection that normally help these transitions to uh, proceed smoothly exist. The way it would happen in the past is that um, cabinet, subcabinet officials would be freed up by the incumbent president to engage with the incoming team. And they would lay out um, how they had seen things, or, uh, what issues had been teed up, um, what was to be decided. And particularly in a national emergency like the coronavirus emergency, you would be having discussions about ongoing projects. Where is Operation Warp Speed? That's the vaccine program. Um, there was at a time a Jared Kushner program to deliver PPE around the country. Where is that now? Does it still exist? Those are the kinds of things that would be involved in a handoff. 
And it is not clear to me that, that there is the professional ethic in the current government to even prepare to deliver the information that a, Trump, that a Biden administration would need. One other point about hobbling. Um, there, there, you, in, the, in the Biden group, you have people who have had these responsibilities before. They know the questions to ask. One of the challenges with some presidential transition teams is that they're outsiders. They're from Chicago. They're from Plains, Georgia. They, they don't have, let's say, um, executive branch experience, so they don't even know the questions to ask. That's not going to be the case with the, with the Biden team. So, so uh, some of the, uh, early, the obstacles that others might have in a current situation, they can leapfrog. And that's why I would say that they're, they're, it's complicating for them, but it's not hobbling. So, Tim Alberta, what is going on with the GOP? You would think that, okay, let's just focus on DOD for a second, that uh, the Republican Party, which has been stalwart supporters of the United States military, uh, of the Department of Defense, constantly, you know, supporting additional dollars sent to DOD. We've got, what, a $680 billion budget there now that that at least this one department would be one that they would want to have function as smoothly and as professionally as possible. But what I'm hearing here today is that that is perhaps no longer even a priority. So what is going on? Well, uh, at the risk of being reductive, what's going on today is the same thing that was going on three weeks ago that was going on three years ago that was going on uh, really from the moment that Donald Trump clinched the nomination for the presidency in the summer of 2016. Uh, Republicans, uh, by and large, have made the determination that it is not in their interest uh, politically, personally, to cross the president. Uh, It's not in their interest to alienate his supporters. It's not in their interest to find themselves on the wrong side of an at real Donald Trump tweet. And essentially, they have, in many cases, uh, made the determination that they would rather allow him to sort of humor himself and and have his fun and and go about his business as, as destructive and disruptive as it may be. And they're not going to do anything or say anything, especially now knowing that he's got less than 70 days remaining in office. Jack, I'm going to hear your thoughts about this when we come back. We are taking a look of a week of political intransigence, its impact on the transition to the the Biden administration. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, there are other things that are going to affect your performance. And maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while. And 
Thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. It's Friday. We're trying to wrap our heads around another historical week in the United States with Republican intransigence in recognizing the win of President-elect Joe Biden and that impact that's having on the transition from one president to another. I'm joined today by Tim Alberta. He's chief political correspondent for Politico. Timothy Naftali joins us. He's a professor of history at New York University and founding director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. Jack Beatty is also with us. He's On Point news analyst. Let's listen to a little bit more of what uh, several key Republican lawmakers have said throughout this week uh, about the transition. First of all, here's Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell earlier this week dismissing concerns that President Trump has not conceded. Uh, And here is what McConnell said. Anyone who's running for office can exhaust concerns about counting in any court of appropriate jurisdiction. That's not unusual. It should not be alarming. Well, Mitch McConnell is nothing if not a masterful politician, because who could argue against an individual's right to bring cases in a United States court? But what McConnell also did in that speech in the Senate was refuse to acknowledge Joe Biden as president-elect. And he's not the only one. So, for example, here's Roy Blunt, Republican of Missouri, on Tuesday. You know, the president wasn't defeated by huge numbers. In fact, he may not have been defeated at all. Jack Beatty, your thoughts? Well, uh, on 60 Minutes this weekend, President Obama will observe about uh, those comments. He calls them one more step in delegitimizing not just the Biden administration, but democracy. Why would Republicans want to delegitimize democracy? Because, as uh, as David Frum observed in a quotation I've used on the show for two years now, because I think it's it's transparent on our condition, uh, if conservatives uh, must choose between democracy and conservatism, it's not likely that they will choose uh, democracy. Uh, why is this? Why is there a turn away from democracy by elites, as we just here heard, and by even the Republican rank and file? There's a poll cited by our friend Larry Bartels, the scholar from Vanderbilt, who was on our program just a while ago, that found that three-fourths, just shy of three-fourths of Republicans agreed it's hard to trust the results of elections when so many people will vote for anyone who offers a handout. Republicans simply view elections now as, uh, well, corrupt, inherently corrupt. Lindsey Graham said, uh, you know, when we win, it's because of our ideas. And when they win, it's because they cheat. And all this because Republicans understand that they can't get what they want through democracy. You can't ban abortion through a democracy. You can't, you know, eliminate taxes on rich people and corporations through democracy. You can't give over the environment to polluters through democracy, and you can't put a gun in every bassinet through democracy. This is a crisis of our whole system. And uh, in, in in Trump's gargoyle extremity, it looks like it's just Trump. It's not. He's reflecting something that's endemic and that's a, a uh, uh, you know, a threat to our system. Well, uh, Jack and, and 
or two Tims, if you could just hang on here with me for a second. I, I want to um, play a little bit of tape that reflects what some of the president's most fervid supporters, or fervent, I should say, fervent supporters, um, you know, a, a, across the country are feeling. Um, because we spoke with Donny O'Sullivan, CNN reporter who's been covering online disinformation. And last weekend, uh, when the Associated press called uh, the election for Biden, O'Sullivan was at the Pennsylvania State Capitol in Harrisburg with a camera crew where he found hundreds of pro-Trump protesters saying that this election had been rigged and a lot of them holding signs that said, stop the steal. And he kept hearing the same stories, stories that had been researched and debunked repeatedly. So here's O'Sullivan with one of the protesters. The ballots that you said you saw are lying around the place or in trash cans or whatever. Where are you hearing that from? Oh, uh, I mean, it's the videos are going viral everywhere. Uh, I've seen them on TikTok. I've seen them on Facebook. I've seen them on Fox News. I've seen them on the local news around my area. Now, O'Sullivan says mostly people were friendly and he told us he does not like it. When people mock voters whose fears are being amplified by the lies and the toxicity in places where they get their news. There's really just genuine Americans, real Trump supporters who really want to believe whatever the narrative is. I've seen too much pieces of different evidence so far that shows that at this point I would be okay with a revote. Really? Yeah, absolutely. When you have video footage of people taking bags of ballots and showing that they are for Donald Trump and lighting them on fire. I helped write a fact check on CNN on on that particular video. The election officials said that video has been going around for a few days. Uh, They are printout ballots. They're not real ballots. So you use the information of the election officials. Interesting. But the disinformation is not just coming from a faceless social media machine. It's also coming from Fox News hosts, for example, and elected officials that appear on those shows. Now, these are politicians that these voters trust. And those politicians are taking a wrecking ball to the truth. And O'Sullivan's reporting shows some of the consequences. It's legal for them to count votes in Pennsylvania two days after the election on November 3rd? Yes. You're wrong. Go. I don't even want to talk to you. Well, O'Sullivan told us that when social media companies block or label posts, including some from these skeptical voters themselves... When they see that... They see that as another way of big tech and the mainstream media trying to censor them. So for some people, a fact check, a label on Facebook saying that a post is false is actually worn as a badge of honor. Well, that's Donio Sullivan speaking with us. And thanks to him and CNN for audio of his reporting. Tim Alberta, I just want to get your thoughts on this, that there's it's not just sort of how um, key members of the GOP are behaving, but it's this system of disinformation that's coursing through American politics that you can see then on the ground level detaches people from the truth. I mean, you wrote that uh, this is the election that broke the GOP. How? Well, look, I think it's important to recognize that this is a, a long time coming and that this did not this this mistrust in our electoral process did not uh, just materialize overnight. Uh, the, the seeds have been planted for some time and and Donald Trump has uh, just dumped fertilizer all over those seeds uh, during his presidency. You know, what we've seen over the last couple of years in particular, and, re- and really, I think most specifically over the last seven or eight months, has, has been pretty extraordinary. Gallup had polling just before Election Day that showed that among Republicans, there has been a 34-point drop over the last two years since the 2018 midterm elections in their confidence that this election would be held uh, fairly and that the votes would be counted accurately. Uh, a 34-point decline in two years. And there is now a record low number of Republicans. I believe the number is 44 percent of all Republican affiliated voters trust the the legitimacy of our elections. And Gallup reported that that was a low, an all time historic low in their polling. This is 
a very precarious time mm-hmm. now for our political system. And I think what's been most shocking, frankly, uh, even when one factors in uh, four years of the Republican Party's leadership and its rank and file enabling and justifying so much of what the president has done, I think there is still a degree of, of shock and surprise that at this moment, when it is clear that Joe Biden is the president-elect, when it is clear that Donald Trump is not going to overturn the election results in four states, when it is clear that his time in office is coming to a close, that even now some of these Republicans are refusing to step out and just state what is you know, painfully obvious to everyone, which is that he has lost and that there will be a new administration and that it's time for the Republican Party to get back to work and go to the drawing board and figure out how to win the next next election. That's what we do in this country. And yet they are so terrified of this president and of his supporters that they can't even bring themselves to acknowledge that reality. Well, Timothy Naftali, I'm also seeing here now that we have just emerging objective measures, if I can put it that way, of how far the the geo the Republican Party has has retreated from democratic norms, right? Just this week, there was um, uh, a study out of a, a Swedish university. They for a, for some time they have recruited six hundred political scientists around the world to make annual assessments of various parties and their adherence to small d democratic values. And their most recent um, publication of of their findings shows that the GOP in the United States has retreated so far from those democratic values that their rhetoric is much more closely aligned with overtly authoritarian parties in places like Turkey and Hungary than it is with um, sort of normative democratic, small d democratic rhetoric we would expect here in the United States. Yes, well, you you know that a, a party's ideas are in trouble when they are afraid that the more people who vote, the less likely it is that they will have power or retain power. Um, yes, I mean the the Republican Party uh, is among those those uh, political parties in in the West, actually, and throughout the world, who um, are are really threatened by expanding the suffrage and by um, easing or facilitating access to the vote. Um, and that, I mean, it's, they're, they're not the first party in American history to be like that. The Democratic Party in the South was like that um, through the second reconstruction of the 1960s. Um, but it's, it's shameful and it's contrary to the way our republic has evolved. I mean, after all, we had a very pinched suffrage at the beginning of our great republic. Only white men with property could vote. And then a little later, uh, uh, freed blacks with property could vote. Um, but uh, uh, the fact of the matter is we've evolved. And um, through the 20th century, we adopted a much broader understanding of democracy. And the current Republican Party's mores are co- completely contrary to that. I wanted to add a point to something very important that, that uh, Tim Alberta said, which is we are facing a, uh, COVID has shown us that we are facing a, a deep, deep educational crisis in, in mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that 73 million people voted for someone who practically went AWOL uh, facing the greatest public health emergency this country has encountered in 100 years says a lot about how uh, many Americans reject science. And part of the challenge for us to move towards a, a, a political culture that permits compromise and mutual understanding and regional cooperation, part of that will rest on the public's willingness to share a base of facts. And that includes scientific facts. And we're so far away from that now that it is really alarming. And I believe that's gonna be part of the challenge in the future. It's not simply uh, the evolution of the Republican party towards towards a group that, that is not embracing a liberal democracy. It's also gonna be the embracing of the American people, of science, and and some facts, some basic facts about our, our nation. Jack, you want to throw in your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a very uh, well-made point uh, and frightening. Um, you're describing there, Tim, a kind of cult, a sort of suspension of rationality. And I don't mean to seem alarming, but someone sent me a uh, a quote overnight from uh, Jorge Borges, John Luis Jorge Luis Borges, excuse me, the Argentine poet, who in 1939 observed that 
uh, fascism is the result of a collective incapacity to think. Uh, it, it, it's frightening if people will believe anything simply because it's said by someone who uh, is on their, you know, their speaks for their tribe, um, and and that is, I think, a civic crisis that that does indeed go to education. Mm. Well, Tim Alberta, I know I've got to let you go in a couple of minutes here, uh, so I just want to, for a moment, refocus uh, our attention on um, the impact that all these big issues and and, and uh, events are having on the immediate task at hand which is the transition uh, so perhaps there's some there's some cracks showing here in Republican um, uniformity uh, around supporting the president and his and his denial that uh, Joe Biden is president-elect because for example here is Oklahoma Republican James Langford um, uh, saying that President-elect Biden should be receiving the president's daily brief or the PBD as per usual in a transition. During the entire campaign since this past summer, uh, Joe Biden and uh, President Trump, who always receives it, have received uh, intelligence briefings every day. Uh, that's once you get past the uh, uh, convention time, both candidates receive that because you don't know who is going to be the president. Uh, that's now stopped for Joe Biden. I think we should continue that because we still don't know who the president's going to be at this point. Interesting. That's Senator uh, James Langford from Oklahoma. Tim, are we going to see uh, bigger and larger cracks in the coming weeks here? We could, Magna, but I, I want to be clear that that is just an embarrassingly low bar to right. clear for for, for, <laughs> for any elected official to come out and say, you know, this person who has won the presidency and who is, you know, some uh, 60 some days from taking office, we should really allow them to receive the vital national security briefings that would allow them to help protect the homeland. Uh, w- when that is the bar that Republicans are clearing to sound reasonable and pragmatic, uh, we're in trouble. To, to Jack's point a minute ago, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that we want to sound alarmist, but maybe we should be alarmed because what we're seeing right now, you know, even Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, came out, I believe, yesterday and said, you know, yes, Joe Biden should be receiving intelligence briefings, but then he's been on Fox News for the last week saying one dishonest thing after another, objectively false, wrong. Uh, assertions uh, about poll watchers being thrown out of sites in Pennsylvania and, and, and the rest. It's, it's a real test for the Republican Party in this moment of whether or not, not to sound like a broken record here, but whether or not they can sort of finally find the courage to confront this president who has sort of bullied them in, into this into this corner over the last four years. Tim, I'm going to so jump in far, here for a second. I just have to jump in a second because I have 30 seconds to, to, before I have to let you go. But does do key members of the GOP realize that if they fail this test, they are harming the country? Do you get a sense of that? Um... That's a hard question to answer. I think I think some of them probably do. I think others live in their own little intellectual bunker, and it's very difficult for them to see outside of it. Tim Alberta, chief political correspondent for Politico. I've got to let you go today, but thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. All right. Jack Beattie and Timothy Naftali standby. We'll have a lot more to talk about when we come back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. On Monday, we are going to be taking a close look at the COVID pandemic 
in South Dakota. It's one of the hottest hotspots right now in the major COVID surge that's going on across the United States. So South Dakota listeners, I really want to specifically hear from you. What are you seeing uh, in your communities regarding the pandemic? Uh, what do you think so far of the state's response, of Governor no- Noam's response to the pandemic? Uh, so give us a call and tell us your story at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. Wanting to hear from South Dakota listeners for our Monday show. Today, since it is Friday, we are trying to make sense of yet another historic week in not just the news, but in all of our lives as Americans. And I'm joined by Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst. He's with us from Hanover, New Hampshire. And Timothy Naftali also joins us. He's a professor of history at New York University, presidential historian for CNN, and founding director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. And uh, Timothy Naftali, I wanted to turn back to something that you had said earlier in the show, because I think it's worth more exploration that uh, the president lost uh, his reelection bid, but we cannot ignore the fact that Republicans further down ballot won. They did quite well here. So, so what, what's, what's the impact of that, given the, the conversation we were just having about sort of the Republican Party as a whole and its drift towards authoritarianism? I think one of the reasons why... Um, um, senior elected Republicans are humoring the president uh, and once again enabling his bad behavior is um, that they are worried about, they are delighted that uh, Nancy Pelosi's uh, majority has shrunk considerably in the House. They are very happy that they only lost one Senate seat. But they are concerned that 73 million Americans will view them as disloyal to Trump. And we have this odd situation where the the Trumpist party was more popular than Trump himself. Um, It it, this wasn't quite this wasn't predictable. In fact, Trumpism, if you think about it, is an incoherent collection of 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 impulses and ideas pulled together by Donald Trump as a vehicle to gain power. Well, it turned out to be much more popular and to resonate much more with Americans outside of Trump's own personal charisma. And that's a fact of life that Republicans are now dealing with. And I think it's part of the reason for their cowardice. The other reason, I would argue, is Georgia. The fact that you have two uh, runoff, two Senate runoffs uh, in January. Republicans need to energize their base in Georgia. Georgia is now a purple state. Um, arguably, it now is almost blue. I mean, it's close. It's a bluish purple state. And so there's great concern. And they obviously Mitch McConnell doesn't want to lose um, those seats. Definitely not both of them. So there are short term tactical reasons that I think are blinding uh, Republican leaders to the long term effects of undermining the handoff of power. I mean, the delegitimating of the results of the election will have a long-term consequence that wouldn't, won't just affect Democrats, also Republicans. And, but I believe that they're blinded to that because of the, these short-term tactical needs and the fact that you have 73 million Trumpist voters and that Donald Trump got, I believe, roughly 10 million more voters the second time around than he did in 2016, mm. even though he lost. Well, Jack, uh, this is reminding me of something you said on the show a while ago about the perils, the extreme perils of a frozen electorate, right? Because, you know, to Timothy Naftali's point, uh, Republican Party leaders are seeing those 70 plus million voters, but only seeing them. That means they're not seeing the even more voters who did not vote for Donald Trump, right? They're not seeing the majority of the electorate that came out to vote for Joe, to, for Joe Biden. And, and, and I don't see this problem going away because even when Donald Trump exits the White House, he is not exiting the political stage or at least the, the media stage in this country. That's for sure. And there's, of course, even talk that he may want to uh, set up his own uh, rival network or 
broadcasting unit uh, to uh, Trump uh, Fox, which he, you know, is insufficiently loyal to him. Uh, bits of the truth have leaked out on that network, and he means to stamp them out. Uh, but what you're talking about, really, is, is you know, the president's uh, handling of the coronavirus uh, pandemic is one of the great failures of leadership in American history, just flat out the case. And in the face of this massive disaster, in, in this change in American life, th- these changes in conditions that upset everything, there was no realignment. <laughs> there was no flooding in of non-voters to the Democrats, no switching, massive switching of Republicans to the Democrats, as you had in the great renovating elections in American history, 1932, 1860, 1828. Realignment has been the American answer to social revolution. And if elections are not based on conditions, and those 73 million people say they're not based on conditions, but are based on identity, then we're in a situation where the great turns of of policy, when governments can confront unmet problems, that's off. And America can't it's the, the dynamics of political change are frozen. Right. So, Timothy mm-hmm. Naftali, how do you see that? Because I keep thinking of the, the, you know, more than 10 hours of conversations that we had with various voters in the, in the fall. And the, Jack's observation about um, alignment vis-a-vis identity is, is spot on. And at the same time, running parallel to that, there was this profound sense that people also just want things to work. They want government to work. They want this pandemic to be beaten. They want schools, to your point about education, to work. They want their roads and bridges to work. I mean, are these two desires about alignment with identity and a a functioning society, are they at odds with each other now? Uh, Well, they shouldn't be. But I I was thinking about how um, we have talked, those of us who study and think about uh, politics, we talk about the general uh, sort of convention. We talk about the, the wisdom of uh, the American people, the American voter. And, and part of that sense of um, conventional wisdom um, is, a, is a belief that, that Americans actually want things to work, that we're a very pragmatic society. We're actually, in general, not as ideological as, as some European societies. And it's that desire for things to work that has led to these realignments that Jack just mentioned. The fact that when you're incompetent, you get, you, you get repudiated and not just you, but your ideas and your political structure. So you have, you have 1980, which is a reaction to Jimmy Carter. I mean, we could argue the extent to which he was responsible for all the problems, but there's no question that generally speaking, most Americans thought he was incompetent. Um, This didn't happen this time. And I don't think it's a partisan view that that um, Donald Trump um, was, a, was ma- managed to bungle the coronavirus challenge in a, in a way that we haven't seen historically in the modern era. I do not believe there is a similar example of presidential bungling. We can talk about the war in Iraq and why it was a mistake, um, but what we see here is a president who completely denied evidence uh, it wasn't a matter of gray of, of a debate over the evidence, a debate over the threat. Uh, we know actually that he understood the threat. At least he told Bob Woodward that he did. And yet, not only did he uh, refuse to use the resources at his disposal to assist states in 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 fighting this and helping us fight this, but he intentionally shared misinformation mm-hmm. about the nature of the threat. He had he lost the presidency. And we will be debating for years the extent to which corona, the coronavirus uh, challenge was the reason that Americans fired him. But Republicans could take from the outcome, the split decision, that, the, that his approach to cor- the coronavirus was not what hurt Republicans outside of Washington. And that's a very bad lesson for the country, for anyone to have learned, because we need to fight the virus and we need to come together under Joe Biden to do so. And this this will make it harder. Well, Timothy Naftali is a professor of history at New York University, founding director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. Professor Naftali, thank you so much for joining us on this Friday. 
My pleasure. And Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, with us from Hanover, New Hampshire. Jack, thank you so much, as always. Thank you, Magna. And folks, stick with us. When we come back, we have a really lovely little treat for you. This is On Point. If you can, I'd like you to give yourself the chance to slow down and find a quiet space to listen to the last part of the show today. Give yourself the gift of a couple of minutes to experience a moment of renewal. As you probably know, through summer and fall, we held a 10-part series of voter roundtables. On September 23rd, we talked with Ahmed Azvedi. He lives in Beaverton, Oregon. He was born in Iraq. And when he came on the show, he told us he'd just become a U.S. citizen. So when did you become a U.S. citizen? Three days ago. Three days ago. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. What was that moment like? What was the ceremony like? It's a dream come true because, honestly, I was dying to get my uh, citizenship before the election. Ahmed got to vote. Living in Oregon, with its all-vote-by-mail system, he had his son take a video as he dropped off his ballot. And in the video, Ahmed does a little dance. Because I was happy. This is, like, first time for me. This is, like, historical moment for me and my family. So here's the update. It just so happens that Ahmed and his wife, Rasha, had something else to look forward to in early November. They were expecting their third child, the first born in the United States. We thought it would be around, like, uh, November 8, 9. We don't know. Which, funnily enough, would have been right around when the presidential race was finally called. However, something even better happened. Election Day arrives, and early on November 3rd... Like, around 2 a.m., my wife, she uh, said, like, I think I need to go to hospital. Yeah, you know where this is going. We are in the hospital and everybody, like all the nurse and doctors, they try to focus. And I, I was watching news in the room, like ignoring everything just to see what we got. Like, And like my wife, she looked into me like, mm, really? Like, this is, do you think this is the time? 9.22 a.m. Pacific time on November 3rd. Rasha, who, by the way, Rasha, I am totally with you. You were right to chide your husband. Rasha and Ahmed's son, Ali, was born. I was happy, like, for Ali to arrive on that day. Like, I suggest, like, we have something, like, will remind that day forever. Mom and baby are healthy, so Ahmed, Rasha, and Ali were home by Saturday. Ahmed told us when they learned the race had been called for President-elect Joe Biden, he danced again. We danced together. (laughs) The victory dance. So he opened his eyes like white. And I think he asked him, like, what's happening right now? Like, why why I'm shake like this? Like, so anyway, um, I, I don't know. Let's hope one day he will understand that. Honestly, I will tell him um, we had, like, a big fight. Like, I mean, an election. And especially with the big numbers we got, people to make them involved with the election, this is victory. And this is for both sides. They need to be proud of it. And uh, for him, I will tell him we will not forget his birthday because it's election day. And uh, I will keep feeding him ideas that we need to keep this nation united and uh, work for the better future for our kids. And that's the thing, isn't it? Sometimes it takes a new American, like Ahmed, to remind us. This man, who came from Iraq, who says he saw firsthand the war-torn, blood-soaked costs of insurmountable division. Well, that I moved. So our responsibility to stand for this nation and not let any politician to try to divide us. 
every four years, Americans from all walks of life, all political persuasions, have the chance to touch the spirit of renewal. The process is imperfect, but the opportunity is there. So there's one last thing we asked Ahmed Azuvedi to do for us. We asked him to record a message for his son, the newest citizen in his family. And he did it, holding his baby in his big arms, stroking Ali's tiny cheek and chin. Ahmed spoke to the man Ali might become. You know you weren't an election day, right? We love you because you bring all the good luck for our nation, right? Huh? Baba? Habibi? Kalebo? Hey man, listen. When you're growing up, let someone can make this nation united again. Or you can be that person who will make this nation united again. Okay? Love you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions – and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.